Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. While the vast majority of financial institutions rank improving the customer experience as their top mission, few organizations get rave reviews. In fact, since the pandemic, it could be argued that our industry is doing a worse job in meeting expectations than they did before the COVID crisis. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing how financial institutions need to reset their strategy around improving CX in a digital world. The competition has expanded and the consumers understand what's possible. The question is, are you ready? I am excited to have Jay Bear, one of the foremost leaders in the world of customer experience and marketing on the show. He is the founder of the firm Convince and Convert and the author of six best-selling books, including his newest book, Talk Triggers, The Complete Guide to Creating Customers with Word of Mouth. He is also very active on social media and hosts multiple podcasts. So, Jay, welcome to the show. Jim, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it, my friend. This will be a good time. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, we were on a webinar together discussing customer experience and the gaps that exist in financial services. You emphasized that while financial institutions talked a lot about customer experience, very few really committed to what was possible. In fact, since the pandemic, the expectation of the consumer has only been elevated with consumers being forced into digital engagements. The mindset has definitely changed. What do you think was the biggest change in expectations that came out of the pandemic? Ultimately, I would say from a consumer standpoint, and the data bears this out, the expectation that has changed the most is just around obstacles in general, right? Is anything that requires an extra bit of time, thinking, effort to overcome, customers have very little patience for that nowadays. In a world where everything has been turned asunder, the last thing you want to do is spend four extra minutes looking for the submit button or whatever the problem may be. People just don't care anymore about what your organizational challenges are to make things easy. And also, when we realize the huge shift in dollars from people going out to restaurants and instead using takeout services and delivery services, all the consumers have been trained now that literally you can press one button on your phone and anything in the world will show up at your door within half an hour. And then as we talked about in the webinar, Jim, you, you go to the financial services industry and it still takes you, you know, 19 minutes and 42 screens to open up a savings account. You're like, well, what is the problem here? When we last talked, and this is the same subject, you mentioned that the consumer's perception of caring has completely changed. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, and this isn't necessarily pandemic-driven. I think it's it's just sort of cultural in this country. A, a little backstory here. I am a seventh-generation entrepreneur. My son is an eighth-generation entrepreneur. My family has been self-employed since the early 1800s or whatever it is. And the number of conversations I had in my whole life with my dad or my grandfather about treating customers with dignity and humanity and respect, zero conversations ever. Quite literally never talked about it because it wasn't a conversation that needed to be had. Jim, you are old enough to remember and I am old enough to remember and many of our listeners are old enough to remember a time 
When treating customers with kindness and dignity and respect and empathy, we didn't even have a name for it. We just called it business. It was the default setting. It was literally the default setting. And now it most definitely is not. Somewhere along the way, we lost our way. And now we find ourselves in an era of empathy deficit, where in business, in life, certainly in politics, treating one another with kindness and respect and empathy and humanity is no longer the default setting. And frankly, as a human being, that makes me a little bit sad. But as a business consultant, I will tell you, it is an enormous opportunity for your financial institution because your customers do not expect nor do they anticipate that you will treat them with that human touch. So when you do, it stands out amidst the noise in a way it wouldn't have at one point and actually becomes a, a huge business advantage. So you're actually saying that the good news is, I guess, that consumers right now don't put banks on a very high plane. They don't expect very much from us because everything's put in context of what the consumer's expectations of you are to begin with. But really what you're saying is, you know, the opportunity is there. Huge. But because the consumer now compares financial institutions to the rest of the world as opposed to simply the bank next door, the, the stakes are higher. No question. And, and you raised a great point, Jim. It wasn't that long ago. And I don't have real data on this. This is just my own gut. I'm going to say three years, somewhere in that ballpark. People used to say all the time, and you would know better than anyone in this industry, Jim, People would literally say things like, you know what? That's a pretty good experience for a bank. That's a pretty good experience for a hospital. Nobody says that anymore because they don't care what industry you're in. If I can press a button and have anything in the world delivered to my house, that's the standard by which your organization is going to be held. And a fascinating stat says that 73% of consumers, and this is just from a few months ago, 73% of consumers now say that an experience with an organization changes their expectations for all other organizations, not just other organizations in that category, all other organizations, which means if Zappos treats your customer really well, they expect that of your bank. And is that fair? I don't know. Probably not. But that's the way consumers think now. Well, it's interesting because it's kind of like what I'm writing about regularly that says, you know, what used to be just simply distant experiences with Amazon, where people actually pay for the good experience they give you, but it extends. So when consumers can get a movie recommended to them or a song recommended to them by Netflix or Spotify or Zoom can create an experience that's face-to-face -face in one push, or that PayPal can basically offer you credit services based on your transactions you have, or Rocket Mortgage can build a mortgage application for you in less than five minutes. This has an impact on everybody because the consumer has been educated over the last year in 700 or 500 level classes in what's possible. So it, it really extends. So the organization we used to aspire and say, boy, they really got a good deal here. Now they're in financial services and they're doing things better. So it really sets a whole new tide level for us, doesn't it? 
No question. I mean, and we've talked about this that you know Apple, the Apple Card is a great example, right? You know, here's an organization that that is is well known globally for making things easy and sanding off rough edges, and now they have a credit card. And what are they going to have next, right? It's not it's not that huge of a stretch to say, well, now you have Apple checking and uh, Apple savings and Apple money market fund, you know, whether they'd get into that business or not, I don't know, but it's not too big of a stretch to get there. Um, and if they can add that same sort of unyielding focus on ease of use, eh, that's something to pay attention to. When you look at the, the level of expectations have increased, especially in the digital world, have those changes happened across all demographic segments or are some income, age, gender, or racial differences evident from your, from your research? It's an interesting way of looking at it, Jim. There are some expectation differences around response time, around what qualifies as fast enough that are driven by age and, and sort of overall cohort. My parents grew up in a time when, you know, the fax was crazy fast, right? So, so they don't necessarily expect every brand to get back to them in three minutes the way my son does. However, when you interact with brands over and over and over, it doesn't matter whether you're 75, your expectations will be reset and, and you will retrain your own thinking to say, well, geez, if the last three times I interacted with a brand, uh, they got back to me in three minutes, how come it takes my bank four hours or two days. So yes, from a baseline standpoint, speed expectations in particular are, are driven at some level by demographic cohort. But over time, those expectations all kind of merge to the middle. Well, it's interesting because we've seen the same thing that, you know, it can no longer be defined by age or income because you're, you're going to find a lot of cases that break the mold. I mean, I'm sorry, you and I, I'm a great example. I don't think there's many people that are more digitally adept than me, certainly at 66 years old. On the other hand, there are some people that are younger that really have never wanted to embrace a digital technology. But, you know, it, it, it's not something we can say all the young people are like this or all the old people are like this, especially because of pandemic, because you threw, you know, the senior group into a situation that they were not necessarily comfortable with, but a necessity and they got real comfortable with it. You know, you got a lot of people. Yeah, you'll figure it out if you have to. Oh, yeah. Oh, mobile deposit capture. You know, mm -hmm. when that's the only way you can deposit a check, you learn how to do it. Or or Zoom, you know, Zoom, we forget that it wasn't even a word a year ago. And now it's a word that's turned into a verb. If the only way you can see your grandkids, you're going to get yourself a webcam. Oh, and, and now, even when they're available and you can see them person to person, you're going to be probably connecting every day because you know how to. You know, oh, grandma's on the on the phone again or on the iPad again. So it's it's very interesting. When you look at customer expectations, they've obviously changed tremendously in the last 12 months. 12 months today, to be exact. Do you think there's some way we're going to be moving out of this expectation as we move out of the shutdown mode? Or do you no think way. customer expectations are that, there you answer my question, are they permanently no altered? Look, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I've never, ever, ever, ever in my whole career seen customer expectations move backwards. It's just human nature, Jim. It, it has nothing to do with the pandemic. Like, nobody ever says, you know what I've been thinking? And I'd be fine if you guys did this slower and worse. 
right? Like nobody ever says that. It just, you know, once you give somebody something, they're not going to be like, nah, it's fine. It's okay. Get back to me when it's convenient for you. It's okay that it's more complicated than necessary to, you know, take this task or it just, it just won't. I mean, we just, we just reset the bar and look, we all know this everything that from a digital transformation standpoint, everything that has happened was going to happen anyway. It wasn't like Zoom wasn't going to happen. It wasn't like mobile deposits weren't going to happen. It was all going to happen. It wasn't like telehealth wasn't going to happen or online education. It was all going to happen anyway. It just happened five years faster than it was going to. So the expectations aren't going to sort of revert to historical norms. They're just not going to maybe ratchet up again quite as quickly as they might have. Well, it's interesting, too, because we discussed this before, that really the holy grail in this whole equation is really going to be speed and simplicity. While a lot of points have to be made around the edges and a lot of changes have to be made in different channels and media and everything else, the reality is the consumer is going to say, can you save me time in my day? Can you make it easier? And that's going to take a lot to that. That's easily said. But, you know, you, you look at the, the aspects of the simplicity of opening a new account. I referenced recently in an article I wrote, the book by James Clear called Atomic Habits. And he brings up the point that 1% changes every day for a year end up being a 30-some percent, 38%, I think it is, change overall. Well, organization, it is bigger than the bread box. Not easy. But if you could take one step out of a process, because it's mostly back office issues, it's not a matter of making digital available. It's making it available in a way I want to receive it. And this goes across all industries, doesn't it? It's not just, it's not just banking for sure. No, of course not. It's everything. I mean, I mean, think about just from an e-commerce perspective, think about Amazon one click, right? Which didn't used to exist. Now they've sort of set the bar that you can just click anything and it'll show up at your house. And and other organizations have either licensed or mimicked that technology. Now you can buy things directly from Instagram ads without going to a website, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it is very complicated to make something simple. That's the challenge yep. that I think that I think banking and financial services has is that you are in many cases, you, you've got a balloon and you want that balloon to go higher because consumers want the balloon to go higher. But that balloon is tied to some kind of legacy string, whether it's a software string or a process string or a recalcitrant board of directors string or something else. And, and so you kind of have this balloon that that wants to rise, but it's being prevented from doing so by something. And you just got to go get yourself some scissors. Greatly into my question around, you, you work with a number of organizations and they ask you, come in and tell us how we can improve our customer experience. Mm-hmm. And you, you show them the holy grail. You show them exactly how to do it. Yeah. How big of a challenge at the end of the day is legacy leadership? At least in our research, we see that organizations know what they need to do. In many cases, they're, they know exactly how to do it, but it's that change mentality, that letting go of 30, 35 years of legacy, let's say, banking experience and saying, we have to identify ourselves as a completely different organization. We've got to let go of that weight that holds us down. I mean, is that when you're looking and trying to sell and the the reason why you don't make a sale in a certain institution, is it usually a leadership issue? Kind of. The good news is that most people don't call me unless they want to do something, right? Uh, You know, we don't try to get clients. They they typically call us. And so if they're going to call us, 
they're probably ready for some medicine to begin with. So, so I don't, I don't fall, I don't find myself trying to convince somebody who then can't be convinced very often. But what is very much the case, and I actually find this more on the marketing side of our business and on the customer experience side, uh, but the point remains the same, is there's very much a, we were successful enough to get here. Now you're telling me that we should change all these things, but look how successful we've been. And, and what's really interesting about customer experience and people who sort of embrace new types of marketing as well is that in many cases, the most successful organizations understand that the way to continue to be successful is to disintermediate your own processes before somebody does it for you. And then the challenger brands have the opportunity to build it from scratch without all the legacy string on the balloon. And the folks that get messed up are those in the middle, those that are modestly successful, right? They're not successful enough to have the courage or frankly, the market position to proactively disintermediate themselves yet they're still so hampered by legacy thinking or legacy circumstance that they can't get out of their own way. So, so the ones in the middle are the ones I think that you're going to find with arrows in their backs. How important when you're looking at customer experience, and you know, this is the last question before a small break, but from a customer experience perspective, how important is, is it to involve and include the employee base in what your mission is as a digital customer experience organization. I'm kind of leading the question. I don't mean to, but, you know, from a level of importance, how important is it to really involve everybody in that as opposed to simply making it a mandate? I mean, if you actually want to have a true impact with customer experience, it's a 100% requirement. I actually did a lot of research on this, Jim, and we did a lot of correlation studies between brands who have excellent CSAT scores and brands that are recognized as best places to work. And the correlation is almost 1.0. I will say this, it is approximately impossible to be great at customer experience unless you are first great at employee experience. One begets the other. You can be good, you can be good at customer experience without being great at employee experience. But you cannot be great at customer experience without also being great at employee experience. And I guess what that leads to is the fact that a great digital experience still needs to be humanized. Absolutely. In some ways, more than ever, because the more we push everything towards digital, the more you sort of have this sense that I truly am just a number to, to this organization. And that's one of the great, I think, challenges for business of all types over the next three to five years is how do you both become more digital and more human? That, that's an interesting dual assignment, right? Because they almost work at cross purposes and organizations that can strike that balance are going to reap significant rewards. You know, it's interesting because it, it's a little bit of a mix on the way you engage and also the culture of engagement. So you take some of the hospitality firms um, before their terrible downfall and, and challenges of last year, they were really mixing in the ability to, to feel like I'm going to make you feel special like mm -hmm. a human. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, I'm going to give you ongoing access to humans. 
you know, it, That's right. it may be through a, a chatbot or something else, but they quickly want to have you still engaged, which says we may not be in a situation where digital replaces humans. It actually enhances the capability of humans more than anything else. Yeah, not only gives you access, but but also allows you to customize, you know, your your interaction with that human so that it's more relevant, it doesn't waste your time, all those kind of things. To the degree that they, the customer wants. So you can, right. you can yes. turn it on or off the, the engagement. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast. Is your organization trying to embrace digital banking transformation in 2021? Are you trying to elevate the customer experience? Figure out what technology you want to implement to improve the customer journey. Look at data analytics to really better understand and personalize the customer experience. And you're trying to make it so that more of your employees can buy into and be part of your digital banking transformation. If this sounds like you, I ask you to reimagine banking with our newest podcast sponsor, Microsoft. They give you the opportunity to unlock new opportunities at speed throughout innovative business models, deliver differentiated customer experiences across channels, products, and services, and redefine new ways of banking. Microsoft and its partner ecosystem help banks to achieve differentiation through sustainable growth, streamlining core systems, reducing cost and risk, and delighting customers and employees. If you're in the midst of a journey trying to figure out what to do next, maybe trying to find out what other organizations are doing to lift up their experience level, I really encourage you to look at Microsoft. For more information, visit microsoft.com slash financial services. So welcome back to Banking Transform. Today, I'm joined by Jay Bear, a marketing customer experience guru, who always has this pulse in the way organizations can improve their brand by improving the way they engage with consumers and businesses. During the first part of the podcast, we talked a lot about customer experience. We're now going to do a little bit of a pivot here and talk about branding and marketing, because I think they're correlated, but they're not necessarily always parallel. So, Jay, you know, from a standpoint of brand, we, we found in research we did that organizations thought that the importance of brand was going to become more important out of COVID. Is this something similar to what you've seen as well? Absolutely. People are making buying decisions based more than ever before on criteria that are not price dependent. They're making decisions based on customer experience and, and ease of, of operations. And then they're making decisions based on brand values. And there's lots of studies, yours and others, to, to demonstrate that, that, that people care where the sausage is made now in, in a way that is really unprecedented, at least in the history of the United States. Some of that's driven by millennials, even more so by Gen Z, who very much care, uh, you know, who, who raised the chicken, uh, metaphorically speaking. But, but it is becoming a criteria for a lot of people in a lot of categories. You know, it's interesting because we look at COVID, but there were so many other crises that went on during this same period from the right. focus on social issues to, to gender issues, to sustainability and earth That's issues. Right. And, you know, when we shut down the world, 
geez, look what the world looked like. We were actually able to see from downtown LA to the mountains of Big Bear on a clear day and see the snow. <laughs> um, and people became aware of what's possible. And it really calls to the fact, and it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out, that people would like to work with organizations that are like them, that have the same right. value structure, the same mission, and they'll make some decisions that way. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to step back into customer experience a little bit, but say, while that may be true, can that whole alignment fall out of whack if the ability to engage and to have a good experience is disrupted, where it's still hard? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's very, very difficult to align an organization, especially a decent-sized, complex organization around brand values, because at the end of the day, you might support the same kind of things that I care about, but if you messed up my checking account or didn't deposit my check, I don't really care about your values. I want my money, right? So it's it's sometimes, you know, Mike Tyson always famously said that everybody's got a plan till they get punched in the face. And I think every brand has a set of brand values until they just screwed up something basic. And then the customer doesn't care what the brand values are. They just want you to make it right. So it's it's a challenge. But we are seeing meaningfully that people are, are voting with their wallets um, and using brand values or tribalism, if you will, as a means of, of making that decision. And I find that fascinating. I've been doing this long enough, Jim, that, you know, as a brand, you would never want to do that in the past. You would never want to purposely turn off a potential customer because the numbers just didn't add up. You're like, well, wait a second. If we take a stand on this issue, then some part of our potential addressable market will definitely not give us money. And that seems ridiculous. Why would we do that? So everybody kind of bowled it right down the middle. But now we've kind of come to a place where if you bowl it down the middle, you don't have enough enthusiasm or affinity amongst anybody. And, and so you end up maybe not uh, doing as well as you would have if you just took a stand and got a disproportionate share of wallet from that particular part of the addressable market. It's just a really interesting shift in sort of core marketing and positioning. You know, you look at a brand like, I don't know, Patagonia, for example, you know, they've been around a long time and, and, and they've been able to, you know, kind of hang their hat on a set of brand values. But, but you look at a big company like Nike. To me, that that was the one that really got everybody to, to open their eyes. Yeah. A massive global corporation who was now embracing a particular set of values and it's literally costing them customers. But it's obviously gaining them more customers because the stock price is way up and their results are way up. And I just find that to be very interesting calculus. Well, it's, it's great because it, it, it's the value of loyalty versus accounts. You know, we, we saw the hesitation you brought up a great example of organizations to embrace or not embrace or stand out or not stand out around Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And Nike very quickly did the math. They benefit in a way from the brand they have and said, I know we'll get this many more customers by taking this stand than people that will say, I'm not going to buy Nike because of their stand. So that's one of those gentle balances. But you got it's a it's a risk, but it's a calculated risk. But it's one of those things you go, okay, while people need, may not agree with our stand, are they willing to give up a brand loyalty they've had up to now simply because of that? Now, 
it, the difference is going to be different for a Nike versus some other company that may not have as much differentiation overall over right. other brands in a certain category. But it was very interesting, you, you alluded to it, to see the hesitation in taking stands, especially from your, your major brands that hit every demographic segment, from financial institutions to consumer goods. You know, what is Procter & Gamble going to do well, the reality is most people don't know what they're buying from Procter Gamble to begin with. And, True. you know, again, we have brand loyalty against a, a brand that that's saying, you know what, we got to stand up for what's right. And that's the same with earth issues, sustain, any kind of sustainability issues, yep. gender equity. It, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because, as you mentioned, the ability to vote with your wallet is instantaneous now in a digital world. And what happens is, a customer doesn't have to close an account to ignore a relationship. I, I bring up this right. example quite often in the banking world that I don't have a relationship with my business bank the way, way I do with PayPal, yet I still have my accounts with my business bank. Where's the dichotomy? Well, the reality is if I get an offer from a PayPal, I know it's going to be smoother, easier, better, and they understand me better than my, my traditional bank does. I may not close the accounts, but I'm not going to expand the relationship. While as PayPal continues to expand their platform, I'm getting more and more comfortable saying, just tell me when to transfer. You know, you offer me a high rate savings account. I'll, I'll, I'll transfer almost immediately yep. because I'm real close. Yeah. There's it's sort of like an emotional pocket veto, right? You're like, I'm not mad, but I'm also I'm not, not happy. I'm not happy. <laughs> and one of the books I wrote called Hug Your Haters yeah. Talked a lot about this principle that only five out of 100 dissatisfied customers will ever complain in a way that you can find it ever. Five out of 100, which means that 95 unhappy customers are invisible to you. So the people who complain, whether they call you or ask to see a manager or, or say something on Twitter or whatever, send you an email, that's not your problem. The problem are people like Jim with his business bank who are simply indifferent to whether or not you exist. Complainers don't kill companies. You're a utility. The meh, the, the, the meh yeah. in the middle is what kills companies. That's a great line. I, lo I love that. The meh in the middle. And, and it's interesting because I just read a study that you'd you love to watch some of these research studies that kind of are pointed in a direction you go, I'm not buying into that. So they said... <laughs> Uh, a forester, a very reputable firm, right when the pandemic was happening, did a research of people that opened up accounts. Yep. And those people that opened up accounts said they liked the human interaction that their branch had in the last year when they opened the accounts. Well, okay, yeah, of course. They. And and that was alluded to the fact that people still want branch banking. I'm saying, well, that doesn't say that. What it says is people that actually opened accounts we're not immediately dissatisfied. Yes. They yes. were going to question their decision. And even more importantly, that, oh, by the way, when I got to the branch, which may not be my channel of preference to begin with, I was okay. Well, yeah, because branch employees are paid and given commission on yeah. making your experience better. In fact, they will take you out of the digital experience and put you into a branch experience mainly because they get paid for that. Oh, interesting. Interesting yeah. dynamic, but it, yeah. it it gets back to be careful about what way you think consumers want 
because it may be based on a on a biased mix to begin with. So yeah, that's right. Another bit of a pivot here to talk about the importance of social media in the marketing mix. How important is social media to a business and its brand? And how is it best leveraged? I mean, is this a communication tool, a customer service tool, a relationship generation tool, a mix? I mean, one of the things that makes social media powerful is also what makes social media hard is that it is by definition all of those things and more. It's a little bit of of everything. And, and to some degree, your social media and its impact on your business is not dictated by you. It's dictated by your customers. You know, it's it's social first, media second. It's right in the name. However, as an organization that does social media strategy for many, 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 many large brands, uh, I will tell you that outside of the advertising side of social, which we'll set aside, um, what we would consider to be organic, unpaid social, right. the best and highest use of that today is to take your current customers who like you and make them love you. It is it is a retention, amplification, and and sort of word of mouth generation vehicle. This idea that you're going to be so good at social media that people who don't already have a relationship with you are somehow going to you know create a checking account is not going to happen. It's just not it's just not the right way to do it. Um, you're not going to have success with that, generally speaking. So. From that perspective, I think the best way to think about social is more like an email newsletter than like a radio commercial, right? Email newsletter you send to people who you already have a relationship with because you have their email address. And what do you tell them? Hey, how are you doing? Things are great. What can we do? Here's some new stuff you might not know about. It's equal parts sort of cheerleading and education. Radio commercial is we've got a special come on down. So social done well in 2021 is much more like the email side than it is like the radio side in uh, in my estimation. So really, it was like your most recent book, Talk Triggers, The Complete Guide to Creating Customers with Word of Mouth. It's actually the combination of social media and word of mouth with content marketing, which, you know, for most institutions was completely foreign until they didn't have any other channel. They kind of work together, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Although I will tell you that most content marketing doesn't create word of mouth because it's not interesting or different at all, right? You know, a brochure that you choose to call content marketing is still a brochure. Yeah. Oh, exactly. You, you can yeah. call it whatever you want, but but it's still perfunctory and mundane. Uh, the, the biggest thing about word of mouth, I don't want to summarize the, the whole book here in two minutes, but I'll do my best. Competency doesn't create conversations. That's the thing that everybody's got to understand, right? So word of mouth is unimpeachably, unimpeachably, the best way to grow your financial institution. Without question, word of mouth is the best way to do that. Um, turning your current customers into volunteer marketers is the best way to grow any business. Your financial institution, Jim's business, my business, any business. And that's been true for like 10,000 years. But we all do word of mouth wrong. We think that competency creates conversation. We think that if we just run a good bank, People will notice that and talk about it, but they don't because we don't talk about things that we expect. We only talk about the things that we don't expect. Look, I have never, ever, ever, ever said, hey, check this out. I went to my accountants and I got my tax return and all the numbers added up. 
I never tell that story because it's not a story. It's not a story because that's what I expect accountants to do. That is competency. No, what are you going to say about your bank? Hey, guess what? My checking account balance is still correct. You know, I mean, what what are you going to do to not to, to, to shock them into saying something? One of the examples I actually use in the book is from Umqua Bank in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Umqua in their branches has the magic silver phone in every branch that has a number that says press six to be connected to the bank president. And it's not the president of the branch, it's president of Umqua Corp. Right. People tell stories about that all the time. Why? Because they don't expect that. So if you want to turn your customers into your best possible sales team, and trust me, you do, you've got to do something that they will tell a story about. And that has to be something that's worth telling a story. And it's interesting because in the digital world, word travels fast both ways. And yes. I, I think I might have mentioned in my uh, webinar with you that I had a, a bad experience on Valentine's Day with a floral company. They messed up on delivering a, fl a floral arrangement to my wife. Now, that by itself is pretty bad. But the fact that they never notified me that I was not going to get it was mm. a disaster. Yeah. And so what happens? I don't pull it out very often, but I decide to get on social media and talk about it and yep. say, guys, the fact that you say if something goes wrong, we'll let you know and you don't do it. The first issue is big. The second issue was massive. And then the response was probably not very good either, because their first response was, I'll tell you what. We'll offer you a bigger arrangement. Well, when you haven't come through on the first one, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, don't feel, think I want a bigger one. And I go, oh, by the way, my wife picked out what she wanted. An unusual situation, but rather than get flowers, flowers she doesn't like, I'm going to get the one she likes. And they said, I'll tell you what, how about if we offer you free, we'll get you exactly the one you want, but it's going to arrive next Thursday. I said, now we're talking. And I said, and you'll let me know if something goes wrong. We will let you know. It's not going to cost me anything. Nothing. And it came. And it was beautiful. And so I believe that when you recover, albeit sometimes with a disastrous start, I believe you, an organization will usually benefit. And they did. They, I got more likes and more views on the good news than I did on the bad news, which most people didn't even know what my bad news was. Yep. Now, take that a step further. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's not something they want to talk about, but... I looked on an account and saw I was gonna I was gonna buy another floor arrangement just for the heck of it to say hey you know what really like what you know things that my wife's doing and things she's working on outside of my work and I decided to buy something so I still had a credit for the amount I bought the first arrangement for so I'm saying this may be an error but the fact was I was going still that side I was going to use them again so yeah, with or without the error the fact that I got it free was really nice but at the end of the day the good news can spread. And it's going yeah. to spread. It's going to be it's going to be part of my talks for the next dozen years. It's amazing. Yeah. There's been a tremendous amount of research on this topic. I've cited a lot of it in my books. Lots of academic studies. First one I think was in 1954, and it's been repeated over and over. But the summary of this line of experiment, Jim, is that problem resolution actually manufactures revenue and loyalty. So what I mean by that is if you've got a customer who's unhappy, as you were, and you can successfully solve that problem as they did, that customer, in this case you, will quite literally buy more 
and be more loyal than the customers who never had a problem at all, which to me is one of the most fascinating psychological constructs yeah. in, in all of yeah. business. I was, I was uh, doing a presentation probably, I guess, three years ago now up in Canada, and it was for a major appliance manufacturer. I can't tell you which one it is, but it, but it rhymes with uh, girl school. And I was, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was up there, and I was talking to their whole team, and at the break, a guy comes up to me and says, Jay, I heard what you said about problem resolution, creating sales and loyalty. And that's so true. Our best performing sales team here in the corporation works like this. If somebody calls in, emails in, chats in, whatever, and has a problem with their dishwasher, washing machine, what have you, we flag that. And if we can send them a part or roll a truck or whatever the circumstances are, if we fix it satisfactorily, we flag it a second time in the CRM. And then two weeks later, it gets passed to this special telephone sales team who contacts that person via phone and says, hey, just wanted to check in. Sounds like uh, we got your refrigerator fixed. Hey, by the way, are you interested in a washer and dryer? It's their number one best performing sales team. And the only people they contact are the people whose problem they successfully solved. As we wrap up here, it's a good example of how bad things can be turned into great experiences. And, and one of the best firms in the world right now doing that is Amazon. Yep. Um, if you've ever had to return anything, you realize they've made the process extraordinarily simple and you're going to get your replacement item before you've even sent back the other one. And actually, after Christmas, because of being so busy, they finally said, we don't care if you return what didn't work or didn't fit or anything else. We just want you to get you what you want. And the value of that, I have a video Alexa device I've had now for about four years, I think three years since it came out. The first one didn't work. And they told me right off the bat, they said, you know what? Send back the old one. We're going to send you the new one. You're going to have the new one tomorrow. They finally got hold of me and said, you know what? Don't even send it back. It's going to take us more to reset. You know, to send it back is going to cost more. You can just keep it. I'm sitting there going. What it told me was they understand the value of the customer. They understand the value of me as a customer. While in financial services, it is more like we look at the risk of, yeah, but if we gave one for everyone that said they wanted one back, look what it could cost us without even thinking about would it really happen? It's so funny when I do uh, when I do workshops with companies and I talk about that idea, like just like you said, well, just let them keep it, or right? whatever, you know, just just you know, let let just don't hassle the customer. Uh, there's always somebody, right, in every in every workshop audience who says, well, yeah, but then but then everybody's going to do it. They're going to scam us, and I can always tell them. I was like, well, that's the suspicious person in your company, right? There's always one. There's always one skeptic, right? Like probably the one who's in management that's going to be the person that's to sign off on the idea to be right. So that yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jay, thank you so much for your time today. It's it, I, you know, after listening to you, watching, reading some of your books over time. Never thought I'd have you on the podcast. Now I get to meet you twice in two weeks. Really my pleasure. I appreciate it. Tell our fans and our audience uh, how they can get a hold of you or how they can read what you're writing. Very kind of you, Jim. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. Uh, you can find me primarily at convinceandconvert.com. That's convinceandconvert.com, which is our main site for our consulting firm. We've got literally thousands of articles about marketing and customer experience. My podcast is called Social Pros, all about uh, big company uh, social media marketing. In fact, we're getting ready to do a uh, five-episode deep dive about every single element of the Sam's Club social media program. We're really excited about that. That's going to debut here in about three weeks. Great. Thank you so much again. Appreciate it. 
You know, what a great interview with Jay Bear. Um, I've been trying to get him on the show for quite some time. And it's great to talk to somebody who really understands customer experience and the importance of marketing as we try to build a better customer base, but even more importantly, build loyalty in a completely disrupted digital world. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, raised as a top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, do not accept status quo. Set yourself and your organization apart. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.